You're listening to an IOE podcast. Powered by UCL Minds. Welcome to the podcast Psyched About Education. This series celebrates the academic excellence of the work carried out at the Department of Psychology and Human Development and the impact this work has on policy and practice. In other words, how can psychology make a difference? I'm Dr. Emma Sumner, Associate Professor at UCL Institute of Education. My research is on how to identify and support the needs of children with literacy difficulties, and I am your host for today. And with me, I have Dr. Zachary Walker, Associate Professor and Head of Department in the Department of Psychology and, of Psych of Psychology and Human Development. Zachary has written a book and multiple chapters on mobile technology and innovative pedagogies. We also have Liz Herbert, lecturer and program leader of the MA in Dyslexia. Liz was a co-investigator on the EU-funded iRead project, which developed personalised learning technologies to support reading skills for different learner groups. And last but not least, Dr. Laura Uthwaite, Senior Research Fellow in the Centre for Educational Policy and Equalising Opportunities. Laura is currently Principal Investigator on the Nuffield-funded project, Can Maths Apps Add Value to Learning? a project that involves a systematic review and content analysis of apps currently available for teachers and children to use. In this podcast, we're going to be focusing on educational technologies, frequently referred to as edtech, and the future of education. Okay, so first of all, I would like to welcome our expert panel. Thank you so much for joining me today. I, I want to start by asking you all, what exactly do we mean by educational technologies? And why is there such a buzz about technology in education? Liz, perhaps you'd like to respond first. Educational technology, also often known as edtech. There is lots of different definitions of edtech. So edtech focuses on the development and the application of technological tools, including software, hardware, and processes and media that assist in the promotion of education and the communication and development of knowledge. So all this impacts on learning. So EdTech basically is technology that facilitates learning. And we know that technologies are continually evolving and not restricted to high-tech materials. And people are really excited about what technology can achieve and the benefits that can include things like personalization of learning and adaptivity. We also have something we call assistive technology. And this is technologies which can improve the lives of individuals, including those with disabilities, to communicate, to live life independently, and, and to, um, can be generally transformative. Possibly one of the reasons for the current buzz around edtech is it can be attributed to um, the pandemic and the resulting school closures. So, we have schools, pupils and teachers, and they were forced to rapidly learn and adopt new technologies. And they may not have ever considered engaging with some of these in the past. So through this process, I think many, many people learned new skills. They saw the positive benefits technology can bring to education in various contexts. For instance, um, accessibility of online tools such as Teams, Google Classroom, Zoom, all of these provided communication hubs with organisational features which allowed operation of virtual classrooms and the continued connection with learners most importantly. And we've got things like hardware such as laptops, tablets, and this meant that pupils could learn anywhere and software such as apps meant that classroom learning could be supplemented with use of um, educational apps to practice 
skills and learning. Thanks, Liz. Um, certainly, in many ways, technology has enabled children and young people to continue with their education during the pandemic. So I think that's a really important point to raise. I think what Liz said is is uh, very true, all of it, for both, both parts of the question. I think the one thing that I would point out is, you know, at one point, a simple pencil was educational technology. Um, our phones are not necessarily made for education, but they're a massive technology that we can use appropriately and responsibly within the classroom. And I think it's important to recognize when we talk about ed tech, there are certain, certain things that are made for education, but for the most part, technology is made for the masses because the masses are where you're going to get money. You're not necessarily going to make a lot of money off an ed tech product. However, the best teachers, the best innovators, the best school leaders are repurposing what is made for the masses and saying, okay, how can I use that in my classroom? And so I think uh, Liz is absolutely right. There's a buzz about it right now because of the pandemic. And, and I'll try to maybe come back to this later, depending on where the conversation goes. But I think there are also some things that we can point out around ed tech that say, okay, there's a buzz now. However, let's not make this bigger than it is. We can use almost any technology for the classroom if we're thoughtful and considerate about how we do it. Just touching again on some of the things that Liz and Zach have highlighted already, like, you know, the promise of EdTech is that children can be both consumers and creators of their learning content. And so it can be a very active process of learning rather than necessarily passive. And so it, it can be suitable for children, maybe when they need extra practice, um, when conventional classrooms may not be accessible, whether that's because of things like the pandemic or because of things like maybe the, the special needs and disabilities. And so I think there is a there is a growing popularity around the use of EdTech. Um, you know, and this was coming in even before the pandemic. So the De Department for Education, um, you know, promoted their EdTech uh, ed tech policy in 2018. Um, you know, and schools have picked up on, on EdTech, um, but obviously there are inevitably challenges and barriers along the way. And it's really important that, you know, when we do implement EdTech within the classroom, that, you know, as the others have said, it's, it's appropriate, it's accessible, but also that it's evidence-based. And I think that's sometimes um, where there's, you know, there's quite a few gaps. In what way can psychology inform the development of educational technologies? And Zachary, perhaps you'd like to take this one first. Yeah, actually, we have a, a book coming out next year on this. Um, and I think one of the things that, that is important to understand is that um, while educational technology itself is not really in a nascent phase, the mass use of it is. And so there's lots that we don't know yet about long-term impacts. Um, obviously, we see some short-term things around social media and things like that. But again, to separate that from educational technology is important in this particular conversation. Uh, to go back to what we mentioned earlier, I think this idea of how we use technology appropriately and responsibly is really, really important um, for, for students and for young children especially. But when we think about, again, thinking about some of the ways that we can use technology as a whole and, and how we think about what we do, I mean, there's so many things that are coming out for mental health. There's so many things that are coming out around fitness and sleep. And some of those are just really good principles for life, right? We know that, that your physical wellness, if you take care of some of those basics, can make you more mentally stable and emotionally resilient and all those things that, that do lead to better outcomes in schools. And so um, while it's, it's, it's hard to say at this point because a lot of the research is still so new um, and we don't know longer term impacts, how you know, psychology informs the development 
Um, what we can say is that there are lots of really good uses and sometimes it's easy to get caught in the negative, um, but it's important to understand that again, if we're, if we're appropriately using them and, and we're teaching our students to use them responsibly, there's lots of good things we can do with uh, educational technology as well. Yeah, absolutely. So really psychology may independ and underpin the content as well as the approach to using these new technologies. Um, Laura, did you have anything to add to that point? Yeah, for sure. So like I said um, earlier, like, you know, one of the biggest gaps that we have, I think, within the space of ed tech is that there's um, there's definitely an evidence based knowledge gap. Um, and it's really important that the ed tech is grounded in evidence and developmental psychology and education, which can help both app designers, parents, teachers and policymakers in a number of different ways. Um, and I think that also then links back to what Zachary just said and yourself about, um, you know, the, the contributions that psychology can make in terms of the content of the apps um, and technologies more broadly. So, for example, there's over 200,000 apps on the App Store and they're marketed as educational for young children. But these apps often don't reflect best practices of how we know children learn effectively. So for example, apps may not always explain why a child's response is right or wrong. Um, it will rather, it will just say like, good job, well done, or keep going. It won't necessarily expand on that explanatory feedback. Um, and so in our current um, maths app project, um, we've highlighted the importance of that elaborative feedback um, as well as programmatic leveling. So this is when the app is able to um, adaptively um, take the child through the learning content in a more scaffolded way, rather than them going through it in a kind of um, sort of free form as and when kind of um, progression. Um, and so psychology can really help us to understand how ed educational technology works, but also who it works for best and importantly, under what circumstances. Um, and I think this is really vital because technology alone in and of itself will not automatically create success. Um, so again, for example, some of the themes that are emerging from our systematic review on maths apps, we found that younger children, so children around four years old, don't always do as well in terms of their engagement and learning with the apps compared to some of the older children. Now, this could be that the maths content is too hard, but it could also be that they haven't necessarily got the language or the vocabulary skills in order to access some of the app-based learning content. So for example, some of the findings from my PhD show that children's proficiency in the language of instruction was associated with their progress. Um, and so this may suggest that for some children, app-based learning um, may not always be best suited or that they may need additional support um, in order to access this content. And so these kind of research findings are really helpful for app designers to identify ways in which to improve their software so that it's beneficial and you know, improve the outcomes for all children. Um, and so as part of this, it's really vital to have collaborations and genuine knowledge exchange that goes both ways between researchers and app developers, as well as um, the users of the technology itself. I think there are some really important points there that you've raised about psychology providing insight into how children learn, and that can inform then how apps are being developed or other technologies are being developed. And that also, and you also really emphasize the benefit of a multidisciplinary team combining both researchers and industry when developing these new technologies. I think, yeah, really valuable points there. What are some exciting developments in ed tech at the moment? You know, if I can be completely honest, it's just the fact that people are finally using technology in the classroom. Um, you know, IBM in 1986, that's not a, a 40 years ago, basically came out and said that, you know, technology allows people with disabilities access to content. 
it allows people to learn in ways that they'd never learned before. This was 1986. The first online classes were offered in the late 90s. I taught my first online class in 2005. And so now here we are 15 years after that, and people are like, oh, you can teach online and it is actually good for students and it can help be accessible for kids. And so I think just the fact that people are actually doing that now, I mean, my favorite definition of innovation is changing before you have to. And unfortunately, we're not innovative in schools. We're not innovative in education as a sector. Um, but that being said, I think what we will see is more innovation will happen now quicker than ever because we've got to this point now because of the pandemic that people had to change, right? And so I think that just the, the fact that people are actually using technology is really important. Now, when you look at some of the stuff that that's out there right now, I mean, you look at augmented reality and virtual reality, those things have been around for 20 years. And we're just now starting to see them work their way into the classroom with some really, really interesting stuff. I, mean, I did my dissertation 10 years ago on mixed reality, which is a combination of augmented reality and real life and virtual reality. And some of the things that we saw with students with um, disabilities and their, their um, individual social skills were just off the charts good. But it's just the fact that people weren't ready to hear that quite yet. So the big thing for me that's exciting at this time is just the fact that people are now using technology and seeing that it can actually be quite good for all students, not just for kids with disabilities or not just kids who are trying to be remote learning. It can actually be really, really powerful for all of our students. It's true about the pace. New technologies are always being added, aren't they? But it's actually then translating that into the classroom um, that can actually take time. So Liz, from your work in this area, are there any barriers that you see in using technology in education? How do we overcome these? Yeah, I mean, starting off, I totally agree with what Laura and Zachary have been saying and, it, and, and about technology and, you know, it's, it's not just the technology, it's how we use it. And, and as Zachary said, agree with that, that point, you know, I know how to use a QR code, whereas a year ago I'd have been quite frightened by one. So even though they're all over the tubes, but yeah, I'd say one of the key barriers for schools in using EdTech, though I'd probably reframe that positively as potential areas for development, would be that we need a clear vision and, and a coherent school plan for EdTech. So schools really need to know what EdTech resources are available to them and to be aware of any evidence which can inform the choice and the use of resources in practice in order to most effectively impact on people and student learning. And I think that's touching on what Laura said earlier. Um, and I think another issue is related to equity. For instance, some schools have got a lovely bank, bank of iPads um, that they can use. And then other schools have got very limited resources. And um, I think, you know, the fast pace of development of technology can be a barrier here. So although some schools may have these banks of iPads, sometimes they're not the latest versions. And as we know, hardware can, as well as software, can become really quickly outdated. So this has got a significant financial implications for schools. So, you know, we need to bear that in mind. Also lack of access to EdTech, that could be another barrier. Again, we saw this during the pandemic where access to technology was hugely varied. Um, I think a positive response would be in, you know, the need to provide support and continuing professional development known as CPD to schools to, to, to ensure that they're making the best use of the resources that they do have. 
and scaffolding the support to schools to develop those skills and knowledge and the confidence across staff teams in the using of EdTech. Um, the key element of the IRE project that I worked on focused on CPD for teachers, and we saw this as really essential, how we integrate technology into schools. And we did find that teachers lacked confidence. Well, some teachers lacked confidence in using technologies in the classroom. And we found that it was important to provide additional support by, and we created a series of um, over 100 CPD events in schools across Europe to support the use of the technologies we created. We developed things like bite-sized videos to support teachers to use EdTech in the classroom. So that was, that was really key to the success of some of our um, work with schools. Um, as an outcome of the IRE project, we're establishing a consultancy um, service now to address this need. And this is available via a quick plug here via our, our iRead website, which is now looking beyond the IRE project. So this provides some links and some key contact details. So I want to come back to, a, to something that Liz said, because I think this is really important. I think one of the things we often fight is, as teachers is I have to know everything. You know what I mean? And I think that's really, really dangerous in the sense that if you have a question with technology, ask the students, ask the kids, they'll figure it out, they'll help you understand it. And I think we have to, you know, it, it, it can be a bit scary at times to think, oh, there's all these things coming into our classrooms and, and what do we do and all that kind of, you know, if we, if we feel like we constantly have to be in control, there's no chance we can do this. But some of the best schools that I've worked with actually have a team of students who are the tech support. And the students starting at age 10 are going around helping teachers figure things out and problem solving. And again, that goes back to the appropriate, responsible use of technology. So I would just encourage if, if there are practitioners out there not to feel like they have to understand everything. There's just too much. But what you can understand is the basic principles of using it and allowing your students to participate in the process and, and be co-producers. I like that point. It's about using your resources that you've got within the schools, which is the children that, you know, are really keen to use this technology in many cases. So I really like that. Thank you. Um, now thinking about just some more practical advice for educators and parents. Um, there are lots of technologies and apps to choose from. And what can educators do to ensure that those that they're selecting are high quality and fit for purpose? Liz, perhaps you'd like to add based on your work here. Yeah, I think at present, there's, there is a lack of systematic guidance on how to choose technologies and use technologies. Um, in particular, things like apps, which I'll use as an example, because we want to ensure they're of good quality and we want to check that they've got a sound theoretical and research base. And ease of downloading and accessibility, as well as the low cost, can lead to apps, for instance, being used to support learning and often with little thought. So content, that can be variable. It's not always evidence-based, yet there is, um, there is little accountability and users may not always be aware of this. So choosing an app, I think, can be overwhelming for educators. And by educators, I am talking about both teachers and parents. And um, often faced with the plethora available, it can become a, a little bit like a am a child in a sweet shop experience. So there's a danger of leaving parents or teachers at the risk of what we, we might call the butterfly or smorgasbord approach, meaning that you might flip from one app to another, not knowing which one's best, or we are overwhelmed by too much choice, simply too much out there 
there's millions of apps out there, Digital Wide World West, really. But um, as part of our um, work on the iRead project, we did write an article for the TS online, and sorry, that's the Times Educational Supplement online, which considered this issue. And um, the project developed a diverse set of learning apps and teaching tools that included a personalised and adaptive literacy game, Navigo game, and a reader app, uh, Amigo Reader. And though this, through this work, we created an evaluation framework tool, which can be used to evaluate the quality of reading apps and guide design and feedback times types within learning games for children more generally. And our tool places an emphasis on feedback design as it is recognised as a key pedagogical dimension of games, particularly in early learning. But there's been little research on how commercial reading games embody existing feedback theories. I know Laura was talking a little bit about elaborative feedback earlier, which is something that we also worked on in our research. Um, but we believe this could be a really big help to teachers. Um, it's critical we continue to systematically scrutinise the design of digital learning games and apps and software given the increasing use in classrooms. And this hopefully will be reflected in future policy guidance, which is obviously um, developing at the moment. Thanks, Liz. I'm bringing Laura into this conversation now again, because your work is really in this area too. In our Nuffield funded project, um, Can Maths Apps and Value to Learn, and we're also addressing this need. Um, you know, Liz has really touched on, you know, the great work that she's been doing within the space of literacy. Um, but I'd argue we also need it for maths um, as well as other areas of education. Um, and again, I think that's where our Nuffield project comes in. So we've systematically um, reviewed the current evidence base um, that brings together both quantitative and qualitative studies that have uh, evaluated a range of maths apps um, with children in the first three years of school. Um, and this review identified 50 studies um, and there were 76 apps that had been evaluated. And so um, there's, there's very mixed findings. And I think in comparative to literacy, it's a, a very much more emerging field of research. Um, and the quality is, um, is definitely emerging, shall we say. Um, and yeah, so as part of the review, we've um, then taken it a step further and we did a content analysis um, in which we developed of the uh, 76 apps um, in which we developed an evidence-based framework which examined both the contents of so the mathematical um, learning content, as well as the app design features um, within these apps. Um, and then we then applied that to some of the most popular maths apps available. So essentially our research findings were not just restricted to those that had been, uh, that had gone through that process. We tried to generalize it um, across to other apps that are available on the market, because obviously, you know, to evaluate an app takes time, it takes money, and it takes collaborations between both the app developers and researchers. And sometimes that, that isn't necessarily in place because there may not necessarily be the opportunities for that. So I think it's really important that there is that generalizability. Um, and so to try and disseminate some of these findings, we're currently developing a website resource that basically will share all of this information and hopefully provide useful signposts for both parents and teachers. And, policymakers too, so that they can make informed decisions about whether they wish to use apps with their children, and if they do, which ones may be best suited for their children. Excellent. We'll keep a lookout for that website then, Laura. Thank you. Um, so now on to my final question for you all. How has your work or psychology research in this area made a contribution to policy or practice? Zachary, perhaps you'd like to tackle this one first. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'll, I'll keep it pretty simple. I think I started looking at technology because of the accessibility and, and some of those things. But but what I've personally learned, and I think what we can really do from psychology, which was touched a little bit earlier, is um, is look at how students learn and how we can integrate that into technology. And then my particular focus is really motivation. And we know that technology is really just a tool, but it's a really powerful tool for kids who want to use technology anyway. So what are the best ways that we can actually integrate technology into the learning experience? So it isn't seen as something fancy. It's just learn as it's, it's seen as a, a means to learning. And I think that that's really important. I think that's where we'll continue to focus um, our research on. Excellent. Thanks, Zachary. Laura? Yeah, so my main research area is focused on um, educational maths apps, in particular, you know, addressing questions, not just, you know, does it work, but delving deeper into more, who does it work for, um, how do they work, um, and under what circumstances. And so some of our current research, which I've already mentioned, so the maths app project, and we've also got um, a number of blogs and other resources that are available on the child development and learning difficulties uh, webpage, which is hosted at UCL. Um, I also wrote a piece for the Charter College of Teaching Special Issue on EdTech a few years ago, uh, which sum summarised some of those key questions relevant from my PhD research. Um, and yeah, like we've had um, a number of projects over the years since I moved to UCL. Um, and I think one of the, the most rewarding so far was working with some of the EdTech companies um, as part of the Educate project. Um, so we, I was a research mentor and I helped the, um, some ed tech companies that were part of the program um, understand some of the research principles um, and research methods and best practices, um, which helped to enable them to do some of the research studies themselves and help ensure that their products were grounded in research evidence. You know, research doesn't need to necessarily be you know, in a, in a high impact journal, it, you know, it can be these internal projects where research, uh, sorry, where app developers are, you know, as part of an iterative design process are taking on board, you know, maybe interviews or focus groups with their users, you know, maybe it's looking at the, uh, the back, the back end data and making adjustments, you know, and Yes, the academic research in terms of, say, some of the work that Liz and I have done around feedback, yes, that can inform the app designers, but how do they then take that and then adapt that to their to their needs? And, you know, in order to do that, I think it's really important that, you know, app, app developers and entrepreneurs do have an appreciation for research methods. So, like I say, being part of the Educate project was a, was a real um, rewarding experience for me in that sense. And Liz? Yeah, um, my work on the iRead project as part of the team, I know I want to say that Emma was part of the team as well. So this is um, led by um, PI Professor Nina Vassalou from the Knowledge Lab at UCL. And this has, um, the project contributed to the research base around the use of feedback in digital learning games and designing for challenge and contributing a set of design recommendations to guide researchers and designers in taking a multi-dimensional view of challenge. And some of the articles written by the team were recently published in a special ed edition of British Journal of Educational Technology, which focused on technology-mediated personalised learning for younger learners. And our award-winning Navigo game, Navigo game, sorry, I always get this wrong, Navigo, Navigo, um, is available via the Google Play Store for free. Um, 
The linguistic infrastructure that we created is available to use by the European learning grid from industry and education. And this has got a lot of potential to be used for creating new digital literacy games. So it's well worth checking that out. Um, also my role leading the masters in specific learning difficulties dyslexia here at UCL. Also we have a focus there on EdTech and we try and encourage our participants to who are training to be specialist teachers to, to reflect on their use of ed tech and developed evidence-informed knowledge of assistive technologies for supporting those learners that may have um, specific learning difficulties. And it's great, teachers tend to translate this knowledge to their practice and they often return to their workplace with a lot more confidence to encourage schools to make informed decisions on technology uptake and using um, ed tech particularly with pupils um, when supporting pupils with um, special needs and disabilities. Well I would like to thank you all Zachary, Liz and Laura for sharing your expertise on educational technologies. It's been really great to hear from you about the benefits and developments in educational technologies and how they can be integrated in the classroom or home learning. And it's also been fantastic to hear about the exciting products that, um, projects that have been conducted and are, are to be continued so we will definitely have to stay tuned for future findings. Um, so that's it from us today. You've been listening to Psyched by Education. For further details or other podcasts from the Department of Psychology and Human Development, please see the links at the end of this podcast. Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast. 